0: Do you like data centers? Because I love data centers!
1: I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Breeze. I do. love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers.
0: Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to, and despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you wanna throw a hashtag, I love data centers in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, everybody. This is Sean Patrick Terrio. Welcome again to the I Love Data Centers podcast. I have on the line now Paul Cruteau from Rackspace, and we're going to have a fun conversation about a lot of different topics that include cloud, the clouding, and uh, how to sell cloud services and, and the optimal way to go about doing that. But before we dig into it, I'd love, Paul, for you to just quickly introduce yourself and let people know where, where you're coming from.
1: Well, hi, Sean. Thanks for having me on. I truly appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so Paul Corteau, uh, Rackspace. My title is Channel CTO. Uh, I am dedicated to supporting our channel partners and sellers nationwide in the u.s uh and from an enablement and educational perspective uh, i don't work on specific deals with our sales reps uh, i am a little bit above the funnel helping my partners and customers uh, push deals into that funnel for our reps to uh, work with partners together awesome
0: and we're going to get into your background but part of the reason why i want to talk to paul is because he's got a background in sales engineering and engineering He's also been on the sales side, and he's got a marketing background, and a couple of degrees in marketing as well. So that trifecta and eclectic mix of, of background and skills and experience that he has is going to make for, for some fun fun conversation here. But, Paul, first question I have for you is where are you physically located right now, just to set the stage? I am sitting in a small suburb
1: on the outside of San Antonio, Texas.
0: Yeah, and San Antonio being where
1: Rackspace's headquarters is, right? That is correct. 1.2 million square foot Former shopping mall that we turned into our headquarters about 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, I was there about a year ago and went down the slide uh, ah. a couple times. I'm curious, have you had the, uh, do they force every racker to go go down that slide?
1: Uh, no, you, you, I, I've been down it a bajillion times. Uh, back in the day, I was one of the VIP uh, tour guides for the castle. So uh, I've been down the slide and I've encouraged many folks to go down the slide. It's a very unique place as you've experienced yourself.
0: This is definitely a very unique unique, uh, office, but you guys have done a phenomenal job kind of setting that shop up. Yeah. Um,
1: so were you born and raised in Texas? No, sir. I am born and raised in Bloomfield, Connecticut, uh, the 06002 fantastic town, just North of Hartford. Uh, the, 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 the all the money in Connecticut people say, Oh, you're from Connecticut. And they think money, that's the, you know, the part that touches New York. I'm from the Northeast side uh, from the hood, we could say, uh, great, great place, uh, all American city back in the day. Uh, born and raised in the same house my entire time, and then uh, when I graduated high school, uh, I moved to Texas uh, for college. So uh, back in the day, I was a, a pretty good sax player. I still am actually. I'm a professional musician on the side. I don't know if you found that in your research, but uh, music is, is is my passion behind. Uh, technology so uh in high school i was you know big fish saxophone player and i knew i was gonna be a music major so uh my saxophone instructor at the time said well paul if you're gonna major in music as a saxophone player you've got three choices you can go to eastman in upstate new york uh, in rochester you can go to uh, the u university of miami in florida or you can go to this place called uh, north texas state in denton texas just north of dallas so i applied to all three gotten all three uh and then saw the cost and i think uh Eastman was 12 grand a year. This is back in the early 80s, Uh, 12 grand a year. Uh, Miami was 13 grand a year and North Texas was four grand a year. So my dad said, son, you're going to Texas. (laughs) I didn't have any scholarships. We were poor. So, uh, uh, we had to go where we could afford it. Um, so I went to Texas and then the, Spring semester, my first spring semester there, they tripled out-of-state tuition for <laughs> uh, wow. for us. But still, it, uh, going there as an out-of-state student was cheaper than if I were going to go to UConn as an in-state student. So, and it worked out great because that first semester I met my my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Um, we're actually that'll be 35 years uh, later this year. We met in the dorm at Bruce Hall at North Texas. Awesome. Yeah. Texas is my home. I got here in 84. I've stayed here, lived here for 35 years, and I love it. So you teed up
0: just one of the questions that I wanted to throw out there. You went from a jazz studies major yeah. uh, and degree, degree holder into technology. Yeah. How the heck and
1: what <laughs> inspired and sparked that, that transition? Oh, uh, uh, need. So, yeah, in high school, I knew I was going to be a a famous musician. I was going to travel the world as a musician. It's it's just sometimes when you're young, you know what you're going to be. And so I I went and pursued that. And, you know, when you go to North Texas, there were um, 2,400 or so music majors. There were over 200 saxophone majors, highly competitive. So everybody there uh, was their big fish in their small pond at home. You know, I'm all state, all New England, you know, all these great awards. And so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go down there and kick butt, and then I everyone I meet there is the same way. So either you survive or you change majors. I prospered. I did really really well. I succeeded. Um, I've got friends that are incredibly famous. I see friends on TV and on the road all the time. Um, uh, it's a tough life. So uh, after I graduated in '88, uh, I traveled the world for a couple of years um working on cruise ships, working leading bands in Japan, playing in Europe, playing as a sideman. Um so life on the road as a musician is incredibly hard. Uh the music fans, they see the fun, the lights, the uh, the, the the stage, the screaming people, etc. and that's freaking awesome, you know. If you're an athlete, if you're a defensive lineman and you at the quarterback and the stadium goes, "Oh, you know that you live for those moments." If you're on stage as a, as a saxophone player and you play a high note or do something really cool, and the crowd goes, ah! you know, there there's no rush better than making 5,000 people scream for you. So uh, it's really, really cool. But that's the the 90 minutes that you're on stage. Those other 23 and a half hours, 22 and a half hours of the day tend to suck unless you're at the upper echelon, unless you're touring with Chicago or Dave Matthews Band or whomever. Um, and I dropped those two names because it's the sax players in both those bands are classmates of mine in North Texas. Nice. Um, yeah, so Ray, Ray Herman uh, is the sax player for Chicago. He was a classmate of mine. And then Jeff Coffin, who's the saxophone player for the Dave Matthews band. He and I were roommates for a summer and we're great friends. And I was just talking to him the other day. Um, so that's the caliber of guys I was playing with. But when you graduate with a degree and then you start, you know, gigging um, the travels is really, really tough. You're on the road, you're in the bus, you're on a plane, you're living in hotels, um, you're setting up, you're tearing down. Um, all the sex, drugs, rock and roll stories you, you hear about on TV. Yeah, they're true, but it's really, really hard on you. And it's definitely not conducive. To a long-term relationship. So after a couple of years in the road, my then girlfriend's like, dude, is this how it's gonna be? And so my panicked, you know, this is a fun conversation we had across the ocean. We just arrived in Portugal and uh I called in to check with her and, and she was stressing out because we had bills to pay because I'm a starving musician at the time. He said, Hey, is this how it's gonna be. And my I thought real quickly, um, no. <laughs> so uh I I got the hint and uh changed things up. So when I got back from that 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 tour, um, I started working as a temp. Because I was decent at computers. I could type and I knew basics. And so I just started working as a Kelly girl back in the day. Um, There was the concept of Kelly services and you were known as a Kelly girl, uh, which is incredibly offensive to people today. But back in the 80s, in the 90s, that was a thing. Um, Hold on, on. back up for me because I'm a
0: child. of I was born in 1980, so you're... Okay, pre pre my time. What what is a
1: Kelly girl? I've never heard so, of that before. Yeah, so Kelly Services is a temporary agency, like manpower or Job Pro, or these companies that find temporary workers for for, for companies. And um, so Kelly Services was the leader in the '80s and '90s of finding temporary workers. And you, you, hey, my my secretary is out sick. Can you bring someone in to answer phones for us for a couple of days? Or uh, this person is going on vacation. We need someone to help. You know be service as, as an executive assistant to one of our leaders while that person is gone. And so they were, they are called temp workers or temporaries, but in, in the eighties and nineties, that industry was almost entirely female. So you weren't called, you were, you were a temp worker, but the Kelly services called them Kelly girls. You were a Kelly girl um, versus, you know, cause it was just, well, you're a secretary. So you must be female. It's like, you're a nurse. You must be a female. You're a teacher. You must be a female. Is there, there's those stereotypes. So, Kelly Services was one of the five agencies I was signed up with. There was Kelly Job Pro, Manpower. There's one called MacTemps. For people that knew this new Macintosh computer back then, and I definitely knew the Mac back then. So um the actual job I got, uh well no, I'll say that for later. But I was working as as a temp, and every morning I'd wake up and call all five services, hey, what have you guys got for me today? I could be called in to go stuff envelopes uh, for some mailing company. I can be called to move boxes in a warehouse. I could be called to answer phones, or uh, eventually I got a call to, to do, uh, for a secretary uh, who was out sick, I had to do a PowerPoint presentation for a president. Uh, it had to be done quickly, and I knew PowerPoint, so I got it done. Um, but th- th- that temp work taught me basic office skills, phone skills, and computer skills. Uh, and as you get better and better, you, you learn more things. You learn Excel. You learn Word. Um, and then you start learning about networks when you have problems and, and, and those things just kind of snowball. Um, so I, I think the original question you asked is how did I go from music to technology? Um, so between gigs, you know, traveling, I'm living in Japan for a year. I'm back in the U.S. i S I'm working on a cruise ship for six months. I'm back in the U S. Um, and so I need money to pay the bills and, uh, get these temp jobs and my, my jobs are getting, you know, higher up the stack. As far as the tech skills go, I, I get a one day assignment. I get a call. Uh, can you do PowerPoint, uh, for, uh, can you be in Las Colinas? you just north of Dallas, uh, at Anderson Consulting. Uh, I said, sure. So, uh, at that time, actually, I didn't know PowerPoint. Uh, so I called my buddy, Hey, uh, Bob, I need Microsoft Office. Have you got it? He's like, yeah. And back then Microsoft Office, the installation was on 40 floppy disks. <laughs> so I went to, went to Bob's apartment, borrowed the disks and then spent about, you know, the hour and a half necessary <laughs> installing all the damn floppies to install Word and PowerPoint. And that's when I learned it. And I learned PowerPoint that night, went to the office the next morning. Uh, I could still see the secretary, uh, uh, the assistant. My name was Paula. And I sat down next to her and they said, uh, this uh, assistant partner needs this presentation done by five today. Can you get it done? I said, sure. So I dive in and being creative, you know, graphic type person, I crank out this presentation and it looked better than most what they had seen before. And so they said, well, can you stay the rest of the week? I said, yeah, absolutely. And they were paying really well. I mean, think back then I was getting... I was getting 20 bucks an hour, which is really, really good. So, um, uh, so yeah, of course I'll stay. And then uh, that week assignment turned into a month and ended up being a two and a half year assignment. I worked as a contractor at Anderson Consulting, who in the early 90s was one of what they called the big six accounting firms. Um, there are six now, there are a few now because of mergers, but, um, that gig was fantastic. So now suddenly I find myself working at one of the, one of the premier Uh, data center services providers, although they they didn't really call it that back then. Um, So I'm doing presentations and sales assistance in document form uh, for a bunch of sales people that are selling, you know, multi hundred million dollar a month MRR type deals uh, to railroad companies, oil companies, et cetera. So I'm getting this great exposure to the business world and IT. And then after about two and a half years, I proposed to my my girlfriend at the time, finally, and... uh, I'm thinking, hey, I've been a contractor for a long time, guys. I'd like to come on the firm as a full-time employee. And they said, well, Paul, we'll be honest with you. Your resume is lacking. You've been with us, which, and you've done great work, but you've got a music degree as your bachelor's. And I'll never forget this because it changed my life. Uh, um, Bill, the the, the uh, um, junior partner, he said, that music degree is about as good as a criminal record on your resume. We can't hire you based on that. Now, this is nineteen ninety two. 92-ish, 93-ish. No, this is 94. And, um, so, so this is a product of, of some mi- mindsets that had changed. In the 80s, uh, we were told pursue your dream we want liberal arts degrees get it get that art degree get that woodworking degree get that music degree um, we want creative thinkers and we want to hire these people in, in, in corporate America well fast forward 10 years no they don't they want analytical people they want accountants and, and 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 finance folks and people that are good with numbers so that formerly popular liberal arts degree known as a music degree was now a cancer a tumor and so I said well hell uh, you're not gonna to hire me what can I do to fix that and they suggested, well, maybe you should get your master's in business, get an MBA. I'm like, hmm. Okay. That's, that's, that's a thought. Now, how do I do this? I'm working full time. My wife now is a school teacher working full time, but I'm stuck. Uh, okay. I'm going to quit my job because you won't hire me. I'm going to make my wife quit her job. I'm going to go to graduate school full time. So I applied to uh, Texas A&M University in College Station and I applied to University of Texas in Austin, got accepted to both uh, for the graduate school, the MBA program. And for them, my resume was great because I had this liberal arts degree. I had work experience. So they all love me. Um, but I chose Texas. As long as you're paying your bills, they love you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'm going to borrow money. They don't care. It's not their risk. It's mine. Um, so, uh, so uh, I chose Texas A&M for a few different reasons. Largely, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law lived there, so it made the move logistically much easier than trying to move to Austin. Um, so I went literally full-time to Texas A&M for two years, dropped everything. My wife quit her job, and we were living literally on my student loans, borrowed everything as the max I could both years. We lived on those loans. Uh, Sue picked up uh, temp work when she could, and, um, and I was a full-time student. Now, you think about the timing of this. That's I entered... In uh, fall of 94, and I graduated in, in uh, May or spring of 96. I was a full time student, 53 hours. But what was going on in 94, 96? Uh, this thing called the web was born. Now, the internet's been around for, you know, since the 60s, but the web as we know it basically popped up uh, in 94, thanks to uh, Netscape and Mozilla. Uh, so here I am at a major university uh, with a brand new bookless library. The concept of, um, uh, uh, internet connectivity and, and, and not having books was huge. So I had massive network. I think I had we had multiple T1s at the time uh, yeah, <laughs> in the AM building. Was, yeah, AM yeah. was
0: one of the few to early adopt and, and become part of that whole ecosystem.
1: They were totally huge about it. And, and so uh, I here I am in this brand new uh, the, the Wainer building. So when I got there in, in fall 94, we were on an older part of campus, but they built the new digital library and business building uh, that opened in the spring. So I was there when that the Wayner building opened and the digital library opened. So now i got this amazing internet access. I have free online access to LexisNexis, the ultimate database. Um, I, have, I have high-speed internet connectivity. So while I'm taking organizational behavior classes and accounting classes and and things like that. And I, I hated accounting. Um, uh, I'm, I'm serving, serving the internet and this, this new web browser thing that, that Netscape gray screen with black text and the occasional blue text that was a link to something else. And I thought, holy crap. If I can click on this, it takes me to this thing here in this computer somewhere else. And, and I recognized right away this is a game changing technology. Um, amazingly, people don't remember that the, the, the link concept is actually something that Apple produced back in the day called HyperCard. And in, in the eighties, Apple had HyperCard and you had a, and you're on, you're on your nine inch monochrome screen and you had a, a like a little business card on your screen and you could put a link and it would take you to a new card. So it was a virtual set of cards that you would, you could kind of create a link. It wasn't connecting to other computers yet, but the concept of linking live to other documents was from Apple HyperCard. And when I saw that, those links happening in, in uh, on Netscape, I'm like, this is like HyperCard. This is really cool. And so, I remember seeing Yahoo pop up as just a bunch of links. And then it wasn't even searchable. And then, and then it became searchable. And so now here I am in grad school, business school, as the dot com boom is beginning, all these amazing things are happening. I remember the, uh, the Netscape IPO, uh, that was, uh, summer of 95. Um, watching that happen and, and the, and the irrational exuberance of the dot com boom. If you had dot com on your name, you were making millions. You know, pets.com was a famous example of failure. So I'm watching these things. And so I'm studying it from a technology perspective and a business school perspective. Why are these valuations where they are today? Why is that company getting millions of dollars? They don't do anything yet. And so I'm experiencing all of this technology disruption, uh, real time as a full time student. If I was still working, I would have been, you know, doing PowerPoints and sales documents for Anderson and missed it all, but I was in, in an educational environment and I realized this is important. So, Again, while I'm studying counting and org, org behavior and, and manufacturing, I'm learning HTML. I already knew Photoshop, so I'm building websites um, for myself, my friends, my my resume. When I graduated, was online. I wish I still had a copy of it, but I don't. Um, uh, so I was building websites and and, and getting these skills. You, if,
0: if it was online, I bet you could find it in the Wayback Machine.
1: Yeah, I tried that. It, it was it was a student account tied to the AM mainframe. So it was like this long AM.edu slash your student uh, names. Yeah, trust me, I tried because I would love to see it. Because it was kick-ass. I actually used Photoshop, it had some pretty strong skills with 3D type stuff, and it was kick-ass and uh, got a lot of praise for it. So my job out of college. Instead of this MBA where I'm, I'm knowing all these, all these things as a manager should know, uh, I got a job as a webmaster at EDS in Plano, Texas, um, the former IT company created by uh, Ross Perot in the early 60s, the man that actually invented the data center business. Um, so yeah, so I come out of grad school with an MBA, and I got hired as a webmaster, and I moved back to Dallas, um, and uh, that's where it all began. A very, very long answer to a very short question, but that's why I, I transitioned from music into IT.
0: No, I love it because most people—not um, most people—but I, I come across a lot of young um, folks as I work. So I'm in Raleigh, okay, and I work Great. with the NC State Entrepreneurship Clinic, and I come across a lot of students and just even cousins of, of mine who believe that they need to have some kind of engineering degree to get into technology. When the reality is, if you if you look at most of the folks who are in our space and in our industry, they don't have engineering degrees. Um, they have a wide variety of degrees, but they stumble upon technology and or are interested in it and learn it and then somehow
1: find a, an,
0: an introductory opportunity and then grow from there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, I've got a, I've I've, uh, I've got teenage kids. My, my daughter's 19. My son is 16. Um, and, and my daughter, you know, she doesn't know what she wants to do yet. She's got some ideas. And I said, Dave, don't worry about it. You don't need to decide your life at age 18 or 19. I said, I'm going to do some research for you. Let me get back to you. So I asked um on a Facebook group, uh, a private group of current and former coworkers of mine over the past couple of decades. Hey, guys and gals, especially gals, how did you get into IT? And the overwhelming, almost unanimous, I would say 95% of the respondents did not intend to enter IT. They found IT via some other happenstance way. Folks started in sales. They started in office work. They started in in a a job somewhere else. And then they eventually got into it. So almost all the people that I work with did not intend to enter IT as their career choice. Um, I offer great advice. I I mentor high school kids and college kids as to how to prep for the real world and and how to set the tables for success. Um, To me, it's more about who you know versus what you know. You got to be smart and work hard. But the most important thing about college, in my opinion, is the people you meet, not the degree you get. Um, yeah. And we could have a whole separate show on is college worth it today or not. But uh, I won't take you down that rabbit hole.
0: Hey, I, I have that debate with, uh, with many people on a regular basis. So we, yeah. we may touch on it at some point.
1: Sure. Uh, but I, I totally
0: agree. Um, and it's, it's not just uh, who you meet in college, but it's also learning how to learn. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah I think oh, that, exactly. Yeah. It's not why am I learning Shakespeare? Why am I learning chemistry? It's you're learning how to learn, how to think, how to problem solve. Those things are all uh, incredibly important. Yep.
0: Okay. So you get into into the industry. Um, you find yourself at SBC after the the dot com bust. Yeah. um, Now AT and T, and then you find your way into Rackspace at probably one of the best times to be at Rackspace. Yeah. Um, in 2000, February 2005 is that company is just starting to you know they survived you know funny enough uh, I was part of a startup when I was in at, at college uh out in Santa Clara California in Silicon Valley from 98 to 02 and we started a company my sophomore year so around 99 2000 and we became a very very early customer of Rackspace wow i did not know that yeah in 99 2000 um And so we totally
1: business model back then.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we, we had a a couple uh, managed servers that, that we leveraged um, to help us as we grew our business, which was called all dorm at the time, at the time. And the whole reason why I know about the Wayback machine is because we, me and my buddies who are part of that whole experience, um, we frequently go back to the Wayback machine and see some of the fun stuff that we were screwing around with on the website back in the day.
1: Yeah. It's really neat to see how the technologies evolve, but yeah. Yeah. I got there, um, in Oh five, I should have been there in Oh three. So, um, before, let's, let's see, when I, l- I left SBC and I went to a company called data return, um, one of the few jobs that I've got not from a personal connection or, or networking was when I left, um, uh, uh uh, EDS, to, I'm sorry, when I left EDS to go to data return, I got a call from Recruiter in 98.com, boom, craziness. Hey, you want to double your salary and get pre-IPO stock options? I'm like, yeah. So I ended up at data return. I was employee number 75. That company eventually became uh, Terramark, which was acquired by Verizon. But when I was there, I was one of the SEs on about a team of 15 or 20 or so, and uh, some of those guys are still my best friends and, and one of those guys named Sean, uh, he left racks. Uh, he left Data Return to go to this little company in San Antonio called Rackspace and at the time, Data Return leadership didn't think they were a competitor because the name of Rackspace, they, they like, Lots of people today still think, thought that Rackspace was a co-location company. And so this, yeah, we're managed services. You know, we're Microsoft's first hosting partner of the year. You go ahead, go off to your little co-location company. Not a problem. We won't, we won't worry about the non-compete. And so he goes down there and he's the first SE at Rackspace. And then he's like, Polly, man, I, I got Eric down here now. Jeff's here. Come on down, move from Dallas. And I'm like, man, <coughs> I'm doing good. And my mom's here in Dallas. My, my mom, my parents moved down from Connecticut to Texas in the late 90s. My dad passed in 99. So my mom's here with me in Dallas. Um, it's now her home. So if I move from Dallas to San Antonio, that's a, that's a, um, a, a 200 mile, I'm sorry. Yeah, 200 miles south. Uh, that's a big move. I, I didn't want to leave her in Dallas. So I'm like, no, Sean, I got to stay here. I'm, things are going good. And, and I, I got my mom, so I'm not going to move. Uh, and then a year later, hey, Paul, come on, Dom. I think things are growing. Things are looking great. And uh, now there's about you know 300 employees there. No, I'm, I'm doing good. And then uh, then I lost my job, dot-com bus. Things got really dark. But I couldn't leave Dallas because my mom was still there and taking care of her. Well, then uh, she got let go from her job uh, at the city, and, uh, she called me and she let me know. She's upset. I said, mom, that's okay. I'm going to take care of you. I got this. I hung up the phone with her, literally called Sean right away. I said, Hey Sean, you've been asking for two years. I'm ready to come down. He's like, you ready this time? Really? I'm like, yeah. I said, okay. Uh, that was a, that was a, a Friday, uh, that next Monday I had an interview in San Antonio. Uh, and, uh, I had, he had the offer letter ready for me at the end of the day. And then I uprooted my family, uh, from, uh, Dallas and moved to San Antonio. It took time. Um, it took me several months. So I spent, I would drive down on uh, a Sunday afternoon. I'd sleep on Sean's couch for a week. And then I drive back on the weekend to help my wife pack, come back down and sleep on, on my friend Eric's couch for a week. And I alternate between their two houses for about three, almost four months of doing that drive back and pack crap. It was a mess, but uh, it got me there. I was m- roughly employee number five twenty-five or so. Uh, in 05. And it indeed was a, a great time to be at a, a very great company with outstanding leadership.
0: They were probably just growing
1: like a weed with... It was, it was nuts. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I got there fee. in yeah, February 05, we were about 500 employees, a little 550 or so. Uh, we were hiring like crazy. It was just exploding. And, and we were staffing um, for two reasons. We were staffing to meet technical support needs. but We were also staffing to meet customer support needs from an account management perspective because customer services are a thing. And so we wanted to make sure that that customer service quality did not degrade. So we were staffing like crazy, doing it the right way, figuring out where to live, and we changed locations, and we changed locations again, eventually got to what we call the castle, that shopping mall I mentioned earlier. Um, fantastic time, growing like crazy, lots of competition. I think at the time there were about 12,000, literally 12,000 hosting companies out there, and uh, we were doing really well.
0: So, funny enough, one of the one of the the students who was interning and then came to work for the startup that I was a part of back in in the early two thousands ended up moving back to Texas where he grew up and got a job over at the Planet.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know them. Yeah, um, and I know that they were
0: a major competitor of yours in in that marketplace, um, and saw them kind of grow pretty large, uh, over a short period of time. And then they, uh, sold to, uh, for a private equity firm, I believe, um, some of the senior leadership team left and started software right. and then software grew larger than the planet in very short order and acquired the, uh, the planet, which I thought was absolutely brilliant.
1: So uh, a little insight, I worked there for a month when it was the planet during that dot com uh, bus transition, interesting place. Uh, that was a they were, they were highly focused on the SMB market. They were focused on the technology, not the supports. Uh, Lance Crosby, uh, was their leader that went and sold the software, the IBM and did software. Really smart guy, excellent product focus. Um, he was always rolling out new. Servers with new features because his focus was hardware and there was a definite market for that. And he was selling them like hotcakes in the yeah. SMB space and um, maybe the early mid market space. He was cranking out the newest box that came out, uh, crank them out and sell them quickly. And, and that, that's really where they excelled. That segment ended up being a space where Rackspace actually divested because we had server beach that was in that arena. Um, that might have been what you worked on when you worked Rackspace back in the day. Um, yeah, eventually Rackspace got out of that SMB market because it just was a different focus a different mindset and not what we wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that IS, they they were one of the first to scale an I true IS uh, you know in, infrastructure as a service offering yeah. it was on a month-to-month right so right. software was one of the only companies that had a month-a-month uh, IS offering that right would throw down a credit card right so when people talk about you know AWS inventing cloud services I'm like yeah okay I can see that from a micro level but software really had that had that game down um, and when I first started working for a, a hosting company and data center company in San Francisco, we truly, we would just look at whatever software it was doing and we tried to do the exact same thing. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> they're, yeah, their positioning, their marketing, um, and we knew that it was scaling and growing and we knew it was working for them because we could uh, just see the growth and we knew a handful of folks inside the company. And yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so we just would rip off what, whatever we could uh, as frequently as we could with what they had going on. Um, but that's, th- that storyline I think is interesting and I'd love to dig deeper into that. So when you were there in 2000, you were there for almost a decade. Yeah. Um, how, how did things evolve within that organization and, and what were some of the key pivot points that you saw occur, um,
1: while you were there? So the focus was always, I mean, we, we had fantastic ethical leadership, uh, Graham Weston, Atlanta Napier, Lou Mormon. Uh, those are the, the top dogs that came in and kind of led the ship after the three founders, you know, uh, you know, asked for help. Um, the focus was always on customers. We, it, it was about fanatical support. Rackspace, and I don't want to get salesy, but Rackspace invented the concept of fanatical support. It wasn't a marketing thing. It was an emotional reaction after a, a difficult, uh, support conversation with a customer where we let them down and, um, so we created the concept. Uh, David Bryce created the concept: of fanatical support. We can't just give good support; great support. It's got to be fanatical, damn it! And we kind of took that ball and ran with it. And So other companies start companies started copying that and had their own two word or three word phrase. But we're the ones that started it. Um, we're actually the yep. company that started. Good.
0: I hate to jump in, but I, I was just touring through the Nextiva offices down in in Arizona, uh, and uh, they've got amazing service. Is their <laughs> is their mantra right? And the, <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, it's I'm, just, it's, it, it's a, you got to have taglines and bumper stickers, you know, the age of the, of the, of the 140 character tweet. Well, now it's not 140, right. but yeah, it's, it shorts things. Um, but it was just an emotional response. So, so what was great about it, what, what made us grow, our focus was on the customers and it was all about the customer. And if you take care of the customers, the numbers will take care of themselves. Um, and that's a, a mindset that Wall Street hates. And I'm not a big fan of the Wall Street mindset. I've been through a couple of IPOs. Uh, I'm, I'm a Northeast guy, and I can say it. The Northeast guys are generally, by and large, a holes. Okay, I'm one of them. I go to the meetings. I understand what it's like. But they're focused on the wrong things. If you're a service company, and this is a differentiator, so Rackspace considers itself a service company that provides technology. Whereas we, when you talked about software and mimicking that, because they were kicking butt when they were, their focus was on on the hardware, the features. Um, Kinda of like people talk about networking and firewalls and UCAS, SD WAN, all these other things today, focusing on the features, not the bigger picture. Rackspace focused on the top down, take care of the customers, the numbers will take care of themselves. And that's that's really what made us different. And then when customers they would hear it and they'd roll their eyes, but then they come visit us at corporate and eventually they come visit us at the castle and they'd be oh my God, I freaking get it. And and they experience it. And so it's one of those things you just don't understand until you experience it. And and that's what we got in Big and successful in IPO because of our customer support focus, not our technology focus.
0: Yeah, I think that's a key um, key point to make because you know, software with the focus on the IaaS, they really didn't want to have to interface with customers. Exactly, they weren't they weren't providing a management overlay. They were just making sure that the the box that someone was hosting or, or leasing. Uh, was live and that there were no issues and that ideally a customer never had an
1: issue to call in whereas Exactly that's that's yeah. exactly I'm sorry to interrupt this that's that's the AWS model. They try can you call someone at AWS and talk to them? No, that's not their model and that's they're they're open about that. They're deploying great technology that smart people can run on their own and, and they're the best at it. SoftLayer's mindset back then was this you you just nailed it. They didn't really want to engage with customers. They wanted to let smart folks buy cool stuff quickly and affordably, and they'd run it on their own. Where um, and there's a huge market for that. i one of the things I, I'll, I'll do when I get into competitive discussions is I'll say, "Yeah, this company says they do the same things as Rackspace does. We're much bigger and a deeper scale, blah blah blah." But uh, that's like comparing—you're comparing McDonald's to Del Frisco Steakhouse, and and I don't that mean that in a negative way because they're they're both incredibly successful at what they do. They're just entirely different focus plays. So if you look at Cooking red meat and selling it to people. That's the umbrella. Del Frisco is going to charge you 100 bucks for a really good steak, although I, I make my steaks almost just as good. Um, or you can go to McDonald's. If I want a, a one-handed double cheeseburger that I can eat while I'm driving, I'm in, I'm in the McDonald's drive through They're a real estate play. They're a fast food play. They are... They're a global brand because of what they do, but it's a different focus than a quality steakhouse like a Del Frisco or Ruth Chris, et cetera. So it's a matter of what your business wants to focus on and and, and identify that and then stick to it, be consistent. Um, And and other other folks, McDonald's saying, yeah, we're Del Frisco, we're Ruth Chris. No, you're not. You sell cooked meat. The differences stop there.
0: All right. So er, were there any other major... Pivots that you saw as the company was scaling from you know, oh, shoot, 500 yeah. people to 50,000 people. I mean, how many employees are over there at this
1: point? Yes, yeah, so we're over, we're well over six thousand now. Um, we've done mergers and things of that sort, but as we were growing, you know, it was all about the, the customer, customer support, uh, scaling services. So we started out deploying physical boxes. Because uh, that's what you did in in the late '90s, early 2000s. You racked and stacked physical servers. Uh, RackSpace offered a uh, a Southwest Airlines mindset. They focused on a key subset of Dell servers, and so we had pallets of those servers, and we had spare parts, just like Southwest Airlines only flies 737s. So your engineers get used to that. You get spare parts. It's a very affordable just-in-time delivery model. So we started out physical boxes, and then. Virtualization became a thing. Uh, you know, VMware, uh, kind of ran with the ball and it's, is a king in that industry. And so you go from physical boxes and those deployed timeframes to, to hypervisors and VMs. And then Amazon opens up its kimono and gives the world the cloud and changes that. Uh, so we pivoted to VMware. And then we also happened to, you know, invent OpenStack, uh, co-invent it with a, with a NASA. It's kind of cool. We invented an operating system and then, um, a bet the company moment happened. Um, it was like, do we compete with Amazon? Do we adopt and support them? And so the three leaders at the top um, had lots of discussions and they came up with a bet the company decision. We're going to compete. We're going to go all in with OpenStack. We're going to open source the cloud, combine that with our support, which Amazon doesn't do, and we're going to own the industry. It was a bet the company decision. And sadly, that bet failed. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a brand new book out by Lanham Napier. I haven't read it yet. He just released it. Um, I forget the title, but we'll look for Lanham Napier and his, his new book. I think building a billion dollar company in Texas, something like that. And he talks about it. And I've read short excerpts of it. Um, of the three leaders, two wanted to compete. Uh, one wanted to work with Lanham wanted to work with, and the other two did not want to work with. And so three of stool, you lose a leg, you crash. So the company bet itself on competing with other cloud companies and that bet kind of failed. So that was a problem.
0: Let's back up just for our our listeners. Um, Sure. Because I was in Silicon Valley when OpenStack became a thing. Uh Um, And there were a lot of companies that were also going all in on OpenStack. Right. uh, And and betting, uh, you know, Internet, for example, went all in on OpenStack as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Data pipe was coming out at that same time, and they as you were saying they didn't want to compete with a w s they instead decided to to join forces and were right. one of the first companies to offer you know a managed a w s offering right um but that OpenStack conversation was interesting because it sounded awesome right yeah <laughs> the, yeah the uh in theory um it sounds like an awesome play uh but what what were you know, from your understanding, some of the critical reasons why OpenStack did not scale for enterprise production environments?
1: Um, well, there's two aspects. So, for, well, for starters, I, I will disagree with that statement. It's definitely available and usable for enterprises because some of our biggest customers are, are major enterprises. I can't say some of the names um, due to NDAs. Major, major retailers uh, deploy it at scale. Um, but then I can say, I, I can talk about CERN, uh, the super collider, uh, they are all in on it as well. And they do, they deploy thousands of instances when they need to. So, uh, from a technology perspective, the technology is rock solid. It, it scales. It's open source. It's really, really, really cool. Um, so it wasn't the technology that was the problem. It was how we took it to market. It's my personal opinion, not an official Rackspace statement, by the way. Um, how we took it to market and just the competitive environment we were in. Um, OpenStack was one Division of the company, uh, one very cool, very smart group of people. Um, but we had, we still had dedicated servers. We still had VMware, uh, fanatical support. We were growing like crazy. Um, uh, the IPO, etc. So uh, uh, it was more of a business problem, in my opinion. Why it didn't blow up? Because you have to market. You have to differentiate yourself. Um, and I think personally, OpenStack and open source in general. The market doesn't know what the hell that is. Talk to salespeople, talk to decision makers. They don't really know what open source is. Um, and so people knew Amazon because of Amazon.com. Uh, they knew, um, you know, eventually got to know Azure because of Microsoft. There's big, 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 you know, funding. You know, their, their marketing budgets were more than our annual revenue, you know. So they, we were outgunned from a marketing and awareness and a brand name perspective. Um, so I think part of the reason it failed was we just didn't have the resources or the focus to properly trumpet it. Um, and I think it was kind of a niche technology. It was out there with other things. And so without seeing this amazing, compelling, wow, I got to have that compelling value. Um, it never really blew up like they, the, the OpenStack team wanted it to.
0: The, the storyline that I've heard routinely from, uh, the engineers who were playing around with OpenStack and trying to move it into a production, um, for their own companies was that the technology, uh was in a constant state of reiteration. Right. And that it required a lot of resources and personnel and time for people to stay on top of it. Um whereas some of the other technologies it was just a lot simpler and easier to get up and running and get rolling quickly.
1: Yeah. Um, when you go open source it's just a do it yourself thing and you're constantly iterating to make things better. Um yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yep. Yeah.
0: Um okay so why why then leave Rackspace in twenty fourteen?
1: Things were changing. Um I left at an interesting time. Um, my role had changed. I moved over out of the SE organization into uh, the marketing side. I was director of te- technical marketing, writing, you know, creating content, etc. Um, leadership was changing. Decisions were. You know, it was a weird time. I, I can't go into too much of it publicly. Uh, it was a weird time, but suffice to say, uh, I left. I want to say January of that year or so. Uh, within a month top legal counsel left Lanham left himself. So a lot of big folks, that's when the open stack or not company bet was made when that happened. I think that kind of created a rift in leadership. And, um, a lot of folks just felt that the company's going in the wrong direction. I'm not saying that had to do with my departure, but I'm saying things were different at the time. So, uh, I ended up finding myself at a a really cool company called Presidio on their solution architects team. Uh, and then I went from there to, uh, to data pipe. um, Cause it has some cool stuff going on over there. And, uh, uh, the grad still, you know, it, it went, it was a tough time for the company. Culturally, leadership wise, lots of change, uh, infighting, uh, between teams, silos, etc. Companies go through these things. There's no such thing as the perfect company. Companies have their good times and bad times. And that was a rough time for the company. Lost some great leadership, lost some talent. Um, uh, it was sad to see, but man, I'm really happy to be back now.
0: Yeah. The, uh when DataPipe started growing, I had a, a friend of mine in the Bay Area, he moved over there and started crushing it and quickly became one of the top sales reps and was, uh, it was refreshing to see a firm that, they, I can't say that they had the same type of fanatical you know, service and fanatical support right. mantra within the organization, however... Um, they knew what they were talking about. They had some of the smartest sales engineers that I've I've ever came across. Especially great engineers.
1: I love being on that team. Really, really good team. Um, yeah. Different. You're exactly right. Different focus.
0: Yeah. Um, so, let's dig into your role now and what what your primary mission is uh, as the the channel CTO. Could you can you dive into exactly what you know? What is you? What are you? What's the task
1: at hand and what what are you focused on driving? Sure. So um, channel at Rackspace is like uh, lots of other things, has gone through many iterations. Um, and uh, when I was at Datapipe, I'm going I'm to backtrack just for a second. When I ended up at Datapipe as a solution architect, I was dedicated uh, to a VP whose job was supporting their channel. So I kind of became the unofficial dedicated channel solution architect at Datapipe, uh, supporting big relationships with Equinix and Microsoft EMC, et cetera, uh, co-location. So uh, that was my first real dive into channel. And so then Rackspace acquired Datapipe. Uh, so I have the unique uh, life experience of being the only person at Rackspace that worked at Rackspace, then Datapipe, then back at Rackspace again. So I'm a boomerang racker, um, but I, have, you know, I had nine years of Rackspace experience before I was at Datapipe, um, I know where the bodies are buried. I could tell things you know, <laughs> about both companies that I won't say here. Um, so, uh, uh, But I worked with a the channel there and I, en- I enjoyed it because it was more strategic, um, bigger picture, which I, I really enjoy personally. It fills my bucket. Um, so come back to Rackspace at, at the acquisition in December of 2017. Uh, I was the first Datapipe employee to get badged because I live here in San Antonio, so it made it easier. Um, and then when I did that same time, uh, Rackspace announced a change in leadership for its channel, naming Lisa Macklin, uh, now a 16-year Racker, um, as the VP of channel. And so Lisa and I had worked together since I was there in 05. She was there before me. And so uh, one of the first things I did when I got to the castle was track Lisa down. Hey, Lisa, here's what I was doing at Datapipe for channel. I would love to be your dedicated solution architect uh, at channel. And she loved the idea. I said I could help create content and support you from a technical side because, at, like many companies, the channel was just kind of ignored. It was, a, it was a, a stepchild. It was a, a stray dog. It wasn't really given the resources needed. And anyone listening that, that worked with the Rackspace channel prior to 2017 has probably had horror stories or, or bad experiences because we changed leadership so many times. And we had some good people in there. We had some not so great people leading it. And so it was kind of an afterthought. Um, and so with Lisa we when we appointed a long-term racker who gets the culture and knows the people and the processes uh, and then you bring me back a long-term solution engineer to help her out uh, she's got a great team of sellers we just actually yesterday uh le- afternoon finished our week of uh you know year-long type meetings with the entire team of channel reps being here in town um we got a great team and we're doing really cool things so the channel is properly funded it's got the proper uh attention uh, from leadership and we're proving and killing our numbers. Um, so my role specifically, I, I was the dedicated solution architect, but it, it wasn't that I was working deals. It is, it's that I was teaching our partners. What is it direct space does? And what is, what is the cloud? What is hosting? What is virtualization? And as I traveled the nation, um, the past 18 months, um, I'm talking to all these great, uh, partners, uh, sellers, leaders, et cetera, and realizing they work with tons of vendors. And it's very hard to know what all your vendors do. And you tend to fall back on the human habits of working with people that you know, selling things that you know about, and you don't want to step into new products that you don't know the answers to the questions to. Um, and, and you work with the vendors that you've known for a long time. Maybe you went to college with this guy or your, your, your in-law works here or whatever. And so you have these nepotistic or personal non-technical reasons you work with various vendors so i find myself saying no rackspace is not a co-location company here's what we do and rackspace today is not is much different than what it was a few years ago during the dark times uh, when things were kind of bumpy um during the dip we call it the dip um so uh so i'm re-educating partners as to what we do and then when they see the portfolio when i walk through here's what we rolled out in q4 of last year like Holy crap, that's incredible. When, and I've heard more than once, why aren't we doing all of our business with you? I'm like, exactly. It's just a matter of awareness. We have a brand name awareness problem. So I've been focusing on increasing that. So I educate the leaders of these companies. I educate their SE teams. I educate their sellers um, on the industry itself, on technology, as well as about us and our portfolio or our differentiators. But I find that if I bring knowledge to people, and I know you've done training in the past, and I'm passionate about training as well. I love to teach. I'm married a teacher; teaching's in my blood. I find if you meet with customers and partners and teach them things, if they leave learning something, they value that more than if you try to sell them something. And uh, so, I drop knowledge. My presentations aren't a, a feature dump. I show up and say, "Here's what's happening in the industry today. Here's where Gartner and Forrester say things are going. Here are some trends. Here's the latest news, and these are the things that drive our product decisions." And then I talk about our products, blah blah blah, and we get into that later. Um, but when you start providing value at a personal level, helping them feel better about themselves, help them do their jobs better, instead of just saying, hey, look at these very shiny things that we do. And this is a neat feature dump. Here you go. Um, you, get, you build strong relationships. And I make myself available to my partners. I, and I tell everybody, here's my card. If you got a question about the industry, about what we do specifically, or, hey, Paul, I'm walking into this, this medical company and I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Got any questions for me? Well, yeah, I've actually got a presentation. I gave more than 50 present questions, open ended sales questions that people have asked their partners that are not technical. They're business related. Um, yeah, ask these questions. Or they say, hey, I'm going to this business this company and they're talking about IoT or they're talking about DR. Do you guys play in that space? And I'll say, yeah, and I'll help them. So I'm here to help you qualify. I'm very fond of the phrase, win fast, lose faster. So if you can qualify business, you, got, you want to get rid of the ankle biters and the folks that just want to have information and never buy. So I give them valuable questions and information they can use to appear knowledgeable to their partners and provide value and I'm here as a resource for them. I don't work individual deals. I'm not doing the actual due diligence and finding out their VMware inventory and their storage and all that other crap and building Vizios and doing quotes. I'm above the funnel, helping them qualify things and hopefully pushing them into the funnel.
0: Gotcha. And you're, you're speaking my language on multiple levels. So <laughs> what are some of the pitfalls that you see some of the IT consultants and the network consultants in the industry who start uh, start down the process and you know they get fired up, they realize, hey, I need to be talking digital transformation, I have to be talking about business needs, I have to be talking about applications and data. What are some of the pitfalls that you see them coming across that prevents them from truly crossing that chasm to solving those types of problems for their customers?
1: Usually it's fear of talking about things they're not very knowledgeable of. Uh, salespeople, regardless of industry, uh, they sell what they know. Um, salespeople generally... Sell what the SEs tell them, because as our former leader used to say, you can't sell without SE. You think about it; the word "sell" is S E L L. So we had we had T-shirts with my, my manager's face on it. You can't sell without the SE, baby. So um, uh, they they people sell what their SEs guide them towards, and we all know that the SEs and SA's really drive a lot of sales activity, and yep. they're a very valuable, They're very valuable resource. The heart. i sure.
0: Was always that the SE is the one that closes the deal. I mean, well, if, absolutely. If the SE doesn't jive with the customer, good luck, but it's just not gonna happen.
1: Well you're exactly right. And unfortunately the sales guy makes all the money and the SE does all the work. That's just right. that's <laughs> how it, that's the the cross that we bear for I'm in an SE partially for twenty years. And that's just one of those things. Um so um so so I think it's a matter of people tend to sell what they know and they don't step out of their comfort zone. Um people sell what they know, they work with People that they know, customers buy from who they like. Um, they sell what their SEs know. And so, um, they don't broaden their horizons. They don't broaden their portfolio. And I think they leave a lot of money on the table by doing so in, in the, in the channel world. One thing I've seen <laughs> time and almost every, every day, um, uh, is channel salespeople, they know networking. They've been selling circuits and bandwidth and, and phone systems and things like that for a very long time. And, it's been very, very lucrative for a lot of them, but that's not the case anymore. Margins are shrinking in the telco world. Five G is going to help that a little bit, but if you're just talking about the network, you're forgetting you're you're only talking one tenth of the puzzle, and so you're leaving a bunch of potential revenue um, on the table because you're not talking outside of your your comfort zone. So, so one of the things I suggest is you know don't focus so much on technology. Talk about business topics dr compliance security cloud digital transformation and 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 think from the top down instead of the bottom up um when you focus which is a technology discussion. So when you focus on on networking services only, you're you're a a network slinger um, or you're a storage slinger. So you're focusing on throughput. You're focusing on IOPS and performance and all these things. But that's really at the bottom of the pyramid of value, in my opinion. Incredibly important. You got to have connectivity. You got to have storage. But when you talk about, you know, oh, yeah, okay, I need a faster firewall. I I need more ports or I need more mailboxes. That's great. And so you you grab the deal and you're done, but you're not thinking, well, what's, why did you, why did this customer just ask me for more bandwidth? Why do they ask me for a hundred new cell phones? And and is, are they growing? Are they, did they merge? Is there a new project? So if you, if you just look at the transactional nature of a hardware purchase, um, you're missing so much. Um, so the pitfall of lost revenue is huge. When you think about things from the top down, what's driving this decision for more network connectivity? is it growth? Do they, do they have more bodies? Is there another business unit? So what's causing that growth? Is there an application pushing this? Is there a product that's pushing it? And so when you flip everything upside down and say, let's talk to our customers. What are you guys doing? What's your, what are your initiatives this year? What are your financial goals? And what's that based upon? Okay. What applications are you using? Where do those applications run today? what are you doing in the cloud today? Not are you doing the cloud because everyone's doing cloud. What are you doing in Amazon today? Uh, What are you doing in Google today? Uh, Where's your critical data? Is it all here? What if you were down? What's the cost of downtime? And so you start thinking from the top down, these strategic and business process questions, you start learning, oh, well, yeah, our data is here, but we've got backups, you know, so we're good there and we'll, I'm sorry, but tape backups are not DR. And then, um, uh, we, yeah, we have a, a second location here. Or, yeah, we're doing this to Amazon. And so I'll say, oh, well, you're, oh, great, you're an Amazon, great provider. How many folks on your team do you have supporting that? Oh, we got a guy. Oh, that's not going to scale. Uh, you know, outages are not 8 to 5 Monday through Friday. So, um, But when you, when you step outside of the transactional hardware and, and device type sale, you, leave, you have access to more revenue. Not doing so, you're just really shrinking your potential for, for growth financially. Yeah, so
0: you've hit one of the key, key topics that we speak to frequently and to what you were mentioned before daily. Um, and it's it's about the sales process and, and how to engage in the conversation with the customer. And I think one of the fundamental paradigms that uh, is is occurring in our industry is that we have a lot of salespeople who are focused on that transaction to what you were talking about prior it to selling what they're familiar with. Right. Exactly. And what, what we're talking about is having a different type of conversation. That's not selling a product or a solution. It's having a conversation, a consultative conversation about a business, a business case and business need. Right. Um, and what we see happening that uh, drives us crazy, and literally I have dents in my wall for me hitting <laughs> my head against the wall in some of these conversations, is in those conversations when we're having business conversations, a consultant that we're working with who's familiar with, let's say, contact center or UCAS or, uh, you know. SD-WAN, Trans- yeah. They'll hear a customer say something that will tie back to a product or a a solution that they're familiar with. And they'll try to spend all of their time talking about that specific product and that specific solution versus letting the conversation continue to play out, explore all the different areas uh, that that need to be explored around applications and data and where that data is. Business strategy of the company and where they're going and, you know, will they be, are they looking for a merger or acquisition in the future, which may completely change the conversation and the need that they thought initially existed, right? Um, And if the goal is to have a better understanding of what our customers are truly trying to accomplish so that you can add value, you can't be selling products. Uh, And the other key piece of that is if we look at the sales process, right? If what you're doing is selling a product, once that customer knows what that product is, they can go out in the market. And a lot of the stuff that, that you know we're talking about here is becoming commoditized, especially on the network side. Right. So they can quickly go online and go to a couple of websites and see what options they have available. And you're sitting on that tail end of that sales process, picking up an opportunity where a customer says, hey, I need this product. What are my options? Versus engaging much earlier in that conversation with the customer, having a strategy conversation, a much wider, deeper conversation, such that when a product is identified, that hopefully you've helped them identify, you have immediate access to that. And so what what we see happening is those who are able to have those types of conversations are the ones that pick up more often than not the products at the end of the process. So if you're not having that initial conversation, you're going to be missing out at the tail end of the conversation. So we see a lot of folks that are sitting at the end of this funnel, waiting for the opportunities to come drop into their lap. But they're not dropping in their lap because you have someone else who's positioned earlier in that conversation with the customer. Is that? Do you see a similar dynamic playing out?
1: Uh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. I mean, you hit a home run. That's exactly the case. Um, you're, you're missing opportunities by focusing on what you know. Uh, you're focusing on a little subset. You're, you're, there's so many analogies, analogies I could think of. Um, you're not thinking big picture. If you know what the business is trying to accomplish, you can say, you can address it from so many different aspects from compute, from storage, from network, from staffing. From security, from geography, um, there's so many different topics you can talk about to customers to unlock massive amounts of potential product sales. Now, granted, a lot of these sellers that are making these mistakes work for companies that only sell that stuff, so they they don't they don't uh, have the ability to to branch out. And these days, so many network focused companies are being forced to step into the cloud to expand their portfolios because again, margins are shrinking and competition is very, very fierce. So they have to partner with folks. And so now you got to choose which partner are the, out of the hundreds that are out there. And, and then we get into the whole, all these various channel events, et cetera, to, to help everybody differentiate. Here's what we do, what we don't do, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely tough uh, to step out of your comfort zone, but you have to, if you want to continue to be successful.
0: And one of the things that I've learned about Rackspace over the last couple of years, um, now that we've been Playing a little bit more intimately together on the on the channel side of the house is all the resources and tools that you built for uh, consultants in the market to walk them through that conversation with the customer, um, and that's you know that that's something that very few organizations in our space have truly spent the time and invested the resources into those resources, uh, and as much as I'd hate to dive into, you know, any kind of sales or, or marketing related speak, I think it's worth mentioning and, and speaking to, you know, what those resources are that Rackspace has available for partners. Um, you know, could, could you speak specifically and to to some of those tools that you
1: Sure. So, and, and, and it, yeah, that's an evolving concept. So, we've got, I mean, on the partner side specifically, we have our partner portal where customers can go to, you know, get information about us, et cetera, case studies, product information, et cetera. We've also launched this application called the All Clouds Guide. Uh, it's still a project in motion being tweaked, et cetera, but it's a, a conversation starter where you ask a bunch of questions, um, in my opinion, too many questions, a lot of questions to help focus the, this customer discussion uh, properly around technology. So they're giving partners these, these, these tools. It's a, it's a phone app uh, called the All Clouds Guide uh a whole bunch of questions and, and the next question kind of depends on the previous question um it's a great information gathering tool and you can know at the end of the tool it's going to say well based on these questions what you've given us and of course you know garbage in garbage out so it's only as good as the put data the customer provides um based on what we just said to this little brief interview in this application uh we think your 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 solution is probably 67% weighted towards the public cloud versus 50% on a private cloud and so it it helps point customers into a potential technical, technical direction, but like anything, uh, one size doesn't fit all and really you want to have a, a conversation with an SE to fi- figure out all the answers to the air quotes. It depends questions because every good SE out there has that answer ready. It depends because it always depends, and especially yeah. in technology. We're not buying shoes. You're a half 10 and a half wide. You, there's your few variables in technology. There's a whole lot of things involved. Um, that are but that are not technical that influence the the, the ultimate uh, decisions to what services you buy.
0: So that that all clouds guide is specifically one of the things that I was referencing when I yeah. when I brought that up. Um, and I totally agree that it's not a one size fits fits all. You can't just have that in front of you in front of a customer and walk right. through that. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a deal pop out on the back end. Right, but where I think it's extremely valuable is for those consultants who are not familiar with the conversation right. to walk them through how that conversation goes and why it's, you know, the choose your own adventure is mm-hmm. a massive encyclopedia type of, of document, right? It's yeah. So it's many
1: a many lot of questions. So many questions. Um, so I, I think one of the benefits, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think one of the benefits is, you, you don't need to talk to a customer. Just pick a pick a customer that you might already know and just practice with yourself and answer you think they were they would. Adopt the persona and run through it and then you'll oh I see what they're asking. And and if you go uh I believe I know the online version has it, but there's video help for every question. Why this question? And then one of our leaders pops up and says, here's the why. So yeah, it's a great learning tool, I think is what you're getting to. You could ask it with customers, but I suggest all our partners run through it a couple of times themselves to understand how complex it can be, how many topics there are, but but then to see the value. And and it's kind of an educational tool as well. Yep. And that's
0: you know, another reason why I was super excited when I saw this is we have a lot of consultants who say, well, can't you just give me, you know, 10 <laughs> questions to ask? <laughs> yeah, uh, the holy grail. 10 questions, Right. I'm like, well, can't you just give me 10 questions to ask to identify an SD-WAN opportunity or a UCAS opportunity? They're like, well, no, you need to know this. You need to know that. It's super complex. I'm like, well, why do you why do you not understand that what we're talking about on the hosting side of the house and cloud services side of the house is the exact same paradigm? It's Right. It depends, right? There's so many different variables. So I'd love to give you 10 starter questions, but if you don't understand why those questions are being asked and what to do with the responses and which tree that's going to lead the customer down and lead you down, then what's the point in even having those 10 questions? You're just going to feel foolish having the conversation, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do and what's preventing you from even having the conversation in the first place.
1: Right. Um was, I mean theres yeah, there's a good. there's a game that we all knew as a kid, you know, Twenty questions. It's not called ten questions. It's it's twenty questions, and it's hard. You try to figure out what the what, what I'm thinking of a person or thinking of a thing. Go, and you have to ask. You know, is it bigger than a bread box? Is it you know is it, you know person, place, or thing? Blah, blah blah. But twenty questions is still not enough most of the time to get an answer. And that's just when you're thinking about one static thing. When we're talking about providing a technical solution for your business. There's no ten answer guide that says, "Oh, here A B C D E F G H I J done. Here's your solution." It said Azure based cloud with this much storage with a dr solution here basically that's just not how it works the analogy i use for partners when i present is um okay let's talk about this thing okay I, i'm hungry uh make me something and uh go and i'll well, okay what do you what what meal is it? is it breakfast is it lunch is it dinner um is it for you is it for 20 people um any food allergies are you vegetarian i mean so they start realizing oh crap there's a lot of variables just to making you lunch is it lunch is it dinner is it a midnight snack so you people you help people understand this is a very very complex thing um, so yeah you and i are singing from the same sheet of music it is it's not a simple thing to to solve for
0: so in your experience have you like what are the aha moments that you see occurring within the the partner ecosystem that you're supporting uh,
1: the aha moments from a technical perspective of the cloud or about Rackspace? What was more specifically?
0: When you're on, uh, in a conversation with one of, the, one of your partners that you're trying to educate and, and enable to start selling above and beyond you know, the, the tool set that they're used to and familiar with selling.
1: Usually the aha is I need to learn more about things that are not network because I'm leaving money on the table. It's like, aha, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I could be selling through a partner and getting paid for, even if it's not my my sweet spot or, or area of expertise. Um, yeah, I re- I realized aha, I sell networking, but that connects to a bunch of other stuff that can generate revenue. It, so another aha, my stuff is still very very important because without the network, their cool stuff doesn't talk to anybody. Yet there's more that I can I can sell. So it's usually an opportunity realization that there's a lot more out there for me.
0: That's exactly what we saw. Um, when we started working. So my firm started working with Microcorp early on and we started doing training events and was really focused on just trying to generate that aha moment mm-hmm. with folks. So it was, you know, two, three days worth of training that was light on a variety of different topics from UCAS to SD WAN to hosting to data center to security. Um, but it was really just generated towards trying to get that aha moment within these partners to realize, right. wow, there's so much money that I'm leaving on the table. Um, How do I tap into that? And we've been extremely successful. And now what we're rolling out now is some deeper dives, right? So you've had that aha moment. You've realized that there's money being left on the table. You started to engage. You want to get your team a little bit more educated on those individual topics. So then we have individual trainings that are focused on security or SD-WAN or UCAS or hosting or cloud or um, data center interconnection, whatever those topics might be. And that's kind of the evolution for the the partner that we're we're seeing in the in the marketplace today, right? Totally agree with that. So, um, what are some of the myths that you see uh, in the space that you hear, maybe sales reps or customers, you know, repeating over and over again? Where you're like, "Well, no, that's that's not really the case."
1: Yeah. Well. Um... Myth number one, Rackspace is a co-location company. Now, that's that's the biggest thing I deal with in the channel. They have no idea, but that, that's such a shameless sales plug. Um, the biggest myths I see, doing it yourself is a good choice. Outsourcing is bad. I should do it myself because I have better control. I know better than someone else about what I need to get done. That's a huge mistake. I mean, it, just downplaying the value of outsourcing. So I, I tell folks, do you have a well in your backyard? Are you living on a generator? Um do you dry clean your own clothes? Um, do you make your own sausage and steak? Do You grow your own vegetables. We have grocery stores. We have dry cleaners. We have the power company and the water company. You know, we have garbage collection. Um, those are all outsourcing. Um, doing it yourself usually costs more. Uh, if I can quote Daryl Plummer from Gardner, a very smart and entertaining consultant. Um, he he said back at Gardner IIT expo last year, uh, Moving into the cloud on your own will take two to three years and you'll probably screw it up. And and he's it's, it's right. you're doing. And so so I've got a, my own personal quote. The problem with doing something right the first time is that people don't appreciate how difficult it was. So tying back to my music life, if you go to a symphony concert and a lot of people may not like classical music and, and that's unfortunate, but if you go to a seat orchestra place somewhere or you watch TV and one of the military bands is playing, you don't hear a single wrong note. And you can go through a three hour orchestral concert and not hear a single wrong note. And people will think, yeah, that was kind of dull. I'm thinking, holy crap. 120 musicians just played for three hours and not a single person made a mistake. I mean, that, that's, and it takes years to get there. So doing things right is, is, um, the perception of it is, it's, oh yeah, it's easy. Um, I've got a great sales story. I, I could tell about a big customer, but I, w- I won't go down that road. Um, the, uh, doing it right. Is difficult. It takes expertise. And so there's a false sense of confidence. Oh, I will, I'm going to go ahead and go in the cloud on my own, or I'm going to do DR on my own, or we're going to, we're going to do this internally because I've got a couple of folks, I've got a team that's smart and, and they can deal with that. And they don't think about the technology involved, the performance. They don't think about the fact that for any one function of any kind in of business to be staffed, honestly staffed for 24 seven support. You need seven FTEs, seven people to support it. Where does that number seven come from, Paul? You need first shift, second shift, and third shift, Monday through Friday. You need first, second, and third shift on the weekends. And you need another person in there to backfill if someone's sick or on vacation or, or whatever. So you need seven bodies to staff any one function for true 24-7 support. Because again, outages don't happen just eight to five, Monday through Friday. Um, so that means you need seven DBAs. Seven cybersecurity experts, seven operating systems experts, seven, you know, application experts, and you add that to all the functions. And folks say, no, I can do it with two or three. We got a smartphone. Well, yeah, you can, but what's their quality of life? And then what happens if, if one of those three, you know, one of your three VMware experts got recruited away because those are coveted skills. Now you've got two. You just had a 33% blow to your productivity. Or what if you have just one cybersecurity person? Because A, they're they're hard to find, and B, they're very expensive. Um, and then C, you know, everyone is is recruiting like crazy, the big players, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, all the big companies, they're rackspace. dying to get a uh, rackspace. Hey, hey, it's trying to get these great people. So uh um you're you're exactly right. And so people get recruited away. So if you got a small team of experts of any kind, what's your business risk from recruiting loss? And that's a big differentiator for us. We've got in, in, on the cyber security side alone, we have 350 or so security engineers. Their job is just security. So yep. we can, we can absorb those body blows. So yeah. that, that myth you can do yourself is, is a big one.
0: I love, I love those because we've never really talked ever until today. And yet we literally speak the exact same language, which is thinking the same 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 thing. thing. Um, So (laughs) one of the other key ones too, that I use in in that conversation that um, is important is you may have like a expert electrician on your team, right? Right. And he's crazy good at, at, at delivering, you know, regardless of uh, what the job is, he's a killer electrician. And he got you from your one-story, you know, house, and you added on addition after addition after addition. But you're now going to be building a 50-story or 100-story skyscraper. Does he have the expertise and the experience building 50 to 100-story skyscrapers? I love
1: that. I'm going to steal yeah. it right now. I'm telling you, Sean, I'm stealing it. I love that analogy because it's yeah. spot on.
0: And then the ed- the other good one too um, that is completely relevant because it's tangential. Tangential is just because someone's a great. Electrical engineer doesn't mean that they're the best carpenter, right? Or that they're the best at the crown molding or at the tile right. work or whatever else needs to go into it. So, an engineer is not an engineer, is not an engineer, is not an engineer. You right. may have a certain expertise in a certain discipline, but in IT, there's just as many, if not more, different disciplines uh, than there are in the real world, you know, building a skyscraper.
1: So, Got that's it. yeah, you're exactly right. And let, me, let me take that a step further. So, so you and I have done our jobs in, in, in as consultants and convince these folks that outsourcing is the way to go. Another myth is happens when they outsource, the project goes poorly. Oh, outsourcing is bad. Bring it all back in-house. I've seen that for years. Um, and, and they think they had a failure. And so, no, we're going to bring it back in-house because we made a mistake. And, and the problem is maybe you didn't outsource to the right vendor. Maybe you did choose the right vendor but didn't give them the right information or you were stubborn. Or your culture wasn't ready for it, or you didn't have the right info. Um, there's lots of reasons why outsourcing can fail, and, and more often than not, it's not the vendor's problem; it's your problem because you did something wrong. So they bring it back in house. Oh no, we got to do this ourselves. We're going to colo it. We're going to build it ourselves, and they freak out. It's like, hey, a plane crash. Are you never going to fly again? No, that's not how that works.
0: Yeah, and, and to your point about you know not having the right information, that's that's one of the key paradigms oh, that I yeah. see. Failures, and it's because the customer did not properly scope uh, their needs
1: with the provider initially. Big time.
0: Yeah, so no, I yeah. see that all
1: the time in the in the sales process. One of the one of the things that I've seen successful sellers uh, in, in Rackspace does it. A lot of other companies do it. Is that you make sure that the people that will be supporting whatever it is you're selling are involved before this contract signature. Um, We've got a very specific process where when a, a deal is signed, there's a transition call, and then you meet new folks. And suddenly, here's this new IT team that, that was not involved in the, the RFP writing or the qualifications, gatherings, and things of that sort. And they're like, like why do we buy this? When you know, so the, so the people buying it didn't involve the right teams, and so now they want to re-architect the thing post-signature. That happens far more often than it should because the people considering outsourcing did not include the right players in the outsourcing request. So how, how do you
0: guys go about solving that? Because that truly is one of the biggest problems that I see occurring for providers in the marketplace is they have sales reps, they have sales engineers, and then there's a handoff to the team that's responsible for supporting it. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen it uh, when I was working for providers. The sales team was like, hey, we need to get this deal done. And the SE is like, well, I know we can't really deploy this and we're going to be learning on the customer's dime. And the sales team goes to management, management says, we're selling it, sell it, we'll figure it out, right? And then it gets sold. And then the delivery team is left holding the bag to try to figure the hell out how to deliver what was just sold. And the SE is like, well, I, I tried to stop this. I tried to throw up a red flag and I yeah. was beaten down and told to shut up and just get the deal done. <coughs> um, so how do you bridge that gap to ensure that that dynamic doesn't occur when you guys are, are working opportunities with customers?
1: Sure. So there's two aspects of that. How do you prevent it? And then what do you do do if it still happens? So um, that's one of the big things I love about my current employer is because we have a very ethical sales process where we have multiple teams that will validate things before we go to signature. So if you you buy an Azure or an Amazon or Google Cloud Platform or VMware thing, those support teams get to validate the design before we even quote it to the customer. So we know that we're not going to sell a solution that we can't support. Or that's a problem. We only quote on best practices, and so uh, sales guys hate it um, because engineers. We, we, all we do is say no. That's all se's do. Um, no, we, we just want to protect support. We view the se's, and this is all seventy of us. We have seventy of us at Rackspace. We view it as a badge of honor. We protect support from bad contracts. So we make sure that we don't sell something we don't do. And I've worked at companies in the past that cared more about getting to yes than getting to the right solution. And that's a sales-driven mentality. And that gets back to my old mindset of the customer first. You focus on the customers, the numbers will bring them, will take care of themselves. If you're focusing on saying, Yeah, oh, we'll figure that out. You, you want Solaris? Yeah, we could do it. And then, hey, do we know Solaris? I think one of our guys did it in college. Okay, yeah, we can do that. Having a guy or a gal that knows a technology is not a product. <laughs> and when a company's offer that, uh, uh I, I get mad. I'm like, look, you're making all of us look bad as service providers if you're saying, Yeah, we can do something when you're not properly staffed for it. So from a competitive standpoint, I'll often ask in sales situations, Oh, they they say they do this. How many folks do they have in the team? Feel free to ask them how many people they have. And help qualify, quantify. Uh, if you choose to go with them, that's great. I, I want you to make a good decision. Just make sure that they can actually do what they're saying. So you try to prevent that by qualifying the technology and being strong on the SC, And hopefully you've got SE leadership and sales leadership that respects the SCs. I know where I work today, I absolutely have that. It's a great mindset. But let's assume that it's end of quarter, end of year, people are clapping their hands, ringing the bells. Come on, got to close. We need this number. We're going to make a number. got to close that deal. And then you close it, Despite the SC saying no, and so, and then you sold it, and then you get to the implementation call or the handoff call, and well, hey, uh, we got issues. So we're just brutally honest, and we'll say, you know, this is not a technology we support. Here's the email threads and the notes from Salesforce that say we brought these concerns up. Um, but you guys wanted to go, okay, we'll figure it out later. Okay, so here's who said that. So we document everything. Always oh, we have a paper trail. of Who said we can do it when you said no? Um, and then if it's one of these situations where the new guys on the customer end were not included from the buyer's team, and they're saying, hey, why do we design the database this way? Or who said storage this? Or why that? And we'll say up front, here's the documentation. Here's why we did. We chose these operating systems and these specs. And they'll say, well, we can't do that. And then we'll say, okay, we understand you guys are not involved in sales process. Here's the impact if we change that. We can do that, what you're asking, and but it'll change. It'll slow us down uh, via contract, or it'll take longer to deploy, or we got to reprice this. And, And so we will put that back on them. And then the customer will say... Okay, yeah, you're right. Our guys weren't involved, and we got to listen to them. So we'll we we'll do the contract. We'll add an addendum, blah blah blah. Uh, but we're just brutally honest about it. We'll say, "Here's the deal." And we just what we're told you wanted, and we walk through it. And that's why we're having this meeting, everybody, to make sure before we lift a finger in support that we, we're doing what you want. Because if we don't, nobody wins. Everyone's unhappy. So when you focus on customer based solutions, uh, based on what you can do, everyone wins at the end of the day.
0: So this. You know, tying this whole conversation back to what we were talking about earlier, you mentioned about um, you know Wall Street, right, and the, yeah. the finance guys and what they yeah. care about, right? When you have fi- when you have Wall Street running a business, unfortunately, not all, all the time, but what I've seen happen, unfortunately, especially in our industry, more often than not, it creates a dynamic where the sales is driving the process, yeah, um, not customer requirements and customer needs and the ability to actually service those needs, right. which to this day still blows my mind how and why that dynamic is, is the case because it's such a short-sighted um, view into what's going to make a company successful. Right. So as, as much as I, we, you know, we may laugh about fanatical support or, you know, Steve's amazing service, the reality is the culture in those companies reflects that dynamic And it's a mantra for a reason. And everyone speaks to it for a reason. And they build that culture, which then builds out everything else within the organization. So it's it's also why I speak to frequently when I'm talking to customers and partners, Uh, you have to understand the full context of the company it is that you're about to put a customer into, because you may have a great relationship with that sales rep or that channel manager at that company. But if you don't know that company intimately, you don't know who's financially backing that company and what the objectives are of those financers, you don't know how big that operations team is on that back end, as you were speaking to, or the technical team is that can support that, um, you know, their ability to truly deliver 24-7, 365 services. Um, you can come into some very sticky situations where yeah. uh, you know a client just signed a contract with a company and finds out the next day that they're merging with or being acquired by a different business that the sales reps were just you know talking a bunch of crap about <laughs> during the whole sales process, <laughs> uh, huh, which actually, on the network I... side happens on a regular basis well, see, that,
1: that was happening. Occur. That was happening when Dataprep was being acquired because Dataprep was a major competitor rack space, and you know we were. Yeah. Even in the midst of the merger, when it wasn't publicly known, we were in, in the middle of the sales process where Datapipe is trying to win a deal and Rackspace is trying to win the same customer. How do we tell the customer? And the, the bottom line is if it, when Wall Street's involved, is you got to keep not a, a deal is not a deal until it's a deal. So you are still competitors until that announcement is made legally. So it's yeah. a tough situation. Wall Street makes things yeah. interesting, it's all about the numbers. Well, we could probably go on and on and on for
0: for hours and hours. But are there any other major myths that you can think of in the marketplace that? Uh, uh,
1: um, I, the big thing, doing it yourself, you know, is better than outsourcing. That's false. Uh, taking things back in house, um, and then I guess a big one: you, you can't just cloudify. You can't just dr you, dr and cloud are two very complex. Topics, they're related yet different. You can't just add it to your business. There's so much involved. I guess the biggest myth, since my focus today has been mostly cloud, is that cloud is cheaper. And that's just not true. Um, you have to re engineer for cloud. What do you, so you may gain savings here, but what are you increasing costs for elsewhere? So, you know, we have a saying at Rackspace the cloud is for everyone, but not everything. So let's talk about. Why are you considering cloud? Is public cloud the best choice? Should it be a private single tenant hardware dedicated cloud? Should it should be a multi cloud approach. Is it hybrid connecting both of those together? Is it in our data center? Is it your office? Is it cloud or a combination? So, so is it going to be cheaper? It might. what's the SE answer? It depends. So what are the financial drivers? How are you staffed? What's your company culture towards cloud? Where's your data? Uh, What are the apps? What are the operating systems? What are are your transactional business? Are your service? I mean, there's so many factors, but there's this marketing pressure out there. Go to the cloud, do the cloud. It's cheaper, save money. And it's just not always the case. And we help folks understand that.
0: Gotcha. So I've got it.
1: Two last
0: remaining questions for you. Sure. One is, what is, and it doesn't even have to be related to the conversation we were just having, but what is one of the most fascinating things that you've learned in the past you know, month or, or two months? Or,
1: coming huh. across or So this one, this is an interesting one and it's definitely not related to our conversation, but I'm going to consider this a public service announcement and it's a very personal one, but it's yeah. very real, very serious. Um, death, death brings out the best in some and the worst in others. So, uh, just a couple of months ago, I lost my mom unexpectedly. I lost my dad unexpectedly twenty years ago. Um, mom was a big, bigger surprise. But um, and think people can be really cool about it, relatives can be complete jerks. But the 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 the, the tough part about about uh, death on a family is the plans. Do you have your plans in place? On in my mom's situation, she had no will. She had no insurance. She had no assets. She didn't even have me listed as her emergency contact at her job. So they had a hard time finding me when it happened. So uh, since this has happened to both my parents, 20 years apart, losing them unexpectedly, no will, no insurance, no plans. I tell all my friends, I've been big about it on Facebook. I'll probably do a LinkedIn post on it as well because it's a very important topic. I've learned that you need to talk to your family members, your parents and your grandparents about their, their end of life plans. Do you have a will? When was it last updated? Um... Do you have your funeral plans set? Do you want to be cremated or buried? Where have you bought the plot yet? Have you picked out the casket yet? Because these are decisions you don't want to make when you're grieving. So, and and my, my mother's and grandparents' generation, they don't talk about death. They they won't even say the word cancer. They'll whisper it. You know, um, oh, we don't talk about that. No, you should because when you die, your family is going through a horrible thing, and the last thing you want to add to their suffering is organizational chaos. So the thing I've learned in, in two months ago is get your end-of-life plans in order. Have life insurance. Make sure you understand the policy. Have a will. Better yet, create an estate so that when you, 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 you do die for yourself, your family has access to your assets and doesn't have to wait months to go through probate and hope that you get access to stuff eventually while creditors are knocking on your door. So get your end-of-life plans together. The advice, having your end-of-life plans is going to make a horrible time in your life a whole lot better i know that was morbid but it's very very top of mind and incredibly important
0: oh no, it's uh it's I'm so sorry to hear about your loss and that's that is great advice for for those who are listening um i hope they take that to heart please do uh, yeah what, yeah what, one of the other questions i have for you is one is the what is one of the most influential pieces
1: of advice you received as you were going through your, your <sighs> there's, a, there's a there's a lot of choices a lot of facets um I think from an SE, an architect, a technology perspective, um, always build your solutions with zero points of single points of failure. Make your decision makers or your customers tell you what you should eliminate and why. Oh, it's too expensive. Okay, well, what's your cost of downtime? So engineer for zero single points of failure, engineer for failure in general. That's a technical one. One of my favorite sayings from Einstein, never memorize something you can look up. So, uh, advice, you know, why, why memorize that when you can, when you can, we got Google. We got, we got the whole world in our hands on our phone right now. You can look anything up. So save your brains for, for cool stuff. Um, on the career side of things, no matter how much your company loves you, you're just a person at the end of the day, always have plan B, some kind of plan B ready just in case, because you never know what's going to happen. Um, in sales, it's all about win fast, lose faster. Quality. This is one of my favorite things is, you know, qualifying deals makes, is incredibly important. You want to spend time talking to people that can buy and that have money. You don't want to talk to folks who are just wasting your time. Um and then financially, you know, invest in stocks that you can explain to your grandparents or your kid. If you can't tell you them what the company does in one sentence, you probably shouldn't be investing in it. That's a Warren Buffett, you know, uh uh type uh type mindset. Invest in things you understand. So those are there's four categories of advice right there.
0: Oh, awesome. And Paul, this has been an absolutely awesome conversation that I'm hoping our listeners will gain a lot of value from. Um, I have one remaining question that I ask okay. everybody who comes through the
1: podcast, but uh, do you love data centers, Paul? I love data centers. Data centers are my life. I've supported data centers for two decades plus. I love me some data center. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. Have a good one. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Hey, thanks a ton, Sean. It's a blast. Let's do this
1: again. Peace.
0: So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com, where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Co-Location Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash Centers. Have a great week and I will see you and and hopefully hear from you soon.